1 John chapter 2. Uh, we're going to finish up here this passage, verse 15 through 17. And as always, always uh, take heed of the, the perfect, infallible Word of God as I read this morning. Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us this morning. Teach us and exhort your word that your scripture falls heavily upon our hearts, that, that it's sealed upon our hearts, that we use the truths of your word this morning to, to bring glory and honor to you. Each and every day that they would be reminded that uh, the world is passing away, it's fleeting. And so we should set our eyes, help us to set our eyes upon you, set our eyes upon eternal things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we've been going through the kind of contrast here of loving the world and loving God. They're, it's impossible to do both. Possible to love the world and then to love God at the same time. Um, and so what I mean by that is, is one who, who loves the world, if they increasingly love the world, if their love for the world increases, their love for God will decrease. Vice versa. And if someone who loves God, their love for God increases, the love for the world will decrease. They cannot both be on the increase at the same time. They cannot. It's like a pendulum here. And when he says here, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in. And look at that phrase, the love of the Father. Love the Father. Well, what John means is the, the, the luminary love that, that, that radiates back to the Father. Right? That, that it comes from the imputation of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Right? Because he first loved, we love. And so his love abides in us through the Holy Spirit and then transcends and is illuminated back towards the Father because he's the one that receives the glory. So that love, that love of the Father. Uh, verse 16 John explains why it is impossible, impossible to love God and the world system, that evil infrastructure that we talked about last week. It's possible to love both at the same time. And everything in the world system is, is contrary to God. Because that is true, it is impossible for any Christian to, to love God and the world at the same time on equal playing fields. And that's John's point. It's John's point here that he's making. And remember what Jesus said. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. For he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he used the example of money. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, 24. And some things just don't go together. They don't mesh. They're, they're incompatible. And you cannot... Sleep and be awake at the same time. Although some of us would probably argue against that, but physically we cannot sleep and be awake at the same time. And you cannot sneeze and keep your eyes open at the same time. Some of us may argue against that too, but I don't know. But you guys get what I'm saying. <laughs> Try it. These things are incompatible. You cannot love God and the world at the same time. As Augustine, he once said, he said, the love of the world... 
To love the world and not God would be like a maiden who loved the ring her lover had given her and cared nothing for him who gave it. It would be, it should be obvious to us just how inconsistent it would be to, to love God and to love the world at the exact same time. Uh, to, obey, to obey one requires, then therefore, disobedience to the other. To love one and to love the other at the same time is, is incompatible. You cannot love God and love the world. One who loves God and loves the world will reveal themselves to be idolaters. Uh, worshiping the, the creature rather than the creator. And notice how at the end of John's letter here, he, he exhorts that. He puts like a bookend on that and says at the very end here to keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from, from worldly things. Not worship the creature, but the creator. Verse 16 here, it, it defines what the world system consists of. Using here like three phrases, three uh, parallel phrases here it says our, our, our fleshy desire, our desire for, for things that we see, desires of the eye, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. So there's three things here he uses. So we're going to unpack each one of these phrases this morning and see what John is, 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 is talking and exhorting to the, the church of Asia Minor and also to, to us this morning. Um, when John, he talks about the the desire of the flesh there. And that same exact Greek word can be translated lust, the lust of the flesh. You'll see a lot of translation, depending on what translation you have in front of you. It may even say lust. And, and, and so that, that word there means an, an excessive desire. An excessive desire. In our vocabulary, that word lust is usually taken in reference to, to sexual desire. Uh, sinful sexual desire, but, but there, it's, it's not just limited to that here. Uh, the, the etymology, the, the makeup of that word uh, in the Greek, it, it literally means to be hot after something. To be hot after something. So in this context, lust is, is any, any sinful desire that is contrary to the will of God. It could be anything. It could be could be somebody of the, the opposite sex. It could be a, 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 a car. It could be a status, a position. It could be anything. So the question is, what does flesh mean here in this statement? It's the human nature that is, is corrupted by sin. And by nature, we're children of wrath, born into sin. So apart from the grace of God, apart from his, his sovereign grace, the flesh offers nothing but a stepping stone to, to the sin in our lives. Desire the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Describes what it means to, to live life dominated by the senses, just moving by instinct. In the extreme, it would consist of of things like uh, gluttonous in, in food, slavish in, in pleasures, and lustful and laxed in, in morals, selfish in the use of possessions, 
the gratification of material desires. So many things. Desire of the flesh includes and all desires centered in our nature without any regard to the will of God. It is that which constantly fights against the things of God in our lives. The lust of the flesh is, is contrary, contrary to the desires of, of the will of God. Galatians 5, you can turn there if you want, or I'll just read it out to you. Galatians 5 uh, started from verse 19. Logan, can you go grab me a water, please? This is probably the most, fam- like, most familiar of all passages on the, the flesh versus the spirit. Uh, Paul, he, he lists several examples of uh, the, the deeds of the flesh followed by the, the familiar fruit of the spirit. And the contrast here is, is, is stark. It says here in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does John say in John... What's John saying in John 3, right? About being born again, talking to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Those who are not born again will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So it says kind of the same similar thing here. Those who do such things, like the contrast, not being born again, contrast is is those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that doesn't mean that a, 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 a true Christian can't slide into sin. That can happen. Right? But our desire, these things are, are not our desire. Verse 22 then says, but the fruit, notice there too, that's, that's singular, the fruit. Many years ago, I think I was, I don't know if I was preaching on this or just talking about it. I had a little you know, knuckle-headed, blonde-haired kid that was like, oh, did you, did you know that it, it actually says fruit is singular? Singular, because I was saying fruits, right? As if they're, or else you can have one and not the other, or, or just some of them and, and not the other. So that just changes things. It is really important that we understand that it's, 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 it's fruit, it's singular. Fruit of the Spirit. Right? Receive the Spirit, receive the fruit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and his desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Right, so we see this stark contrast between the flesh and the Spirit. This fruit of the Spirit versus the fruit of the flesh. So back to John. Uh, those who are, who are loving the world and, and giving into the desires of the flesh, 
can expect to see these kinds of, of attitudes, these kinds of actions that are characterizing their lives. It should, it's, it's things that are evident in their lives. But then on the other hand, contrast to that, those who are not loving the world system, but rather are controlled by the Spirit, that are walking in step with the Spirit, can expect to see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. As difficult as it may be, uh, Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to make no provision, no provision of the flesh. Calvin, he used that very Pauline passage to, to define what the lust of the flesh, the desire of the flesh is. He said this, he said, When worldly men desiring to live softly and delicately are intent only on their own conveniences. And Calvin's spot on here. Spot on here because much of our flesh craves its own conveniences. As a great Puritan, Richard Sibes, he said this, This flesh of mine is, is ready to betray me into the hands of the world and of the devil. Therefore, there must be a marvelous strong guard. I must not suffer my affections to wander. There must be a, a marvelously strong guard. And that has to be the strong right arm of the Lord. It cannot be the flesh. It's just putting on the, the full armor of God. Digging in the word and in mining the armor from the word. It's a desire of the flesh. Look at the second phrase here. The desires of the eyes. Things we see. I mean, the desire of, of, of what we see before our eyes. In Scripture, the eyes are the primary window of, of perception and, and often the, the principal avenue of, of temptation. We see that in the case of David, you know, who saw Bathsheba, lusted after her, and later committed adultery with her. She also snowballed into to, to murder of her husband. David, he, he should, have, should have read, he should have practiced what, what Job says in Job 31.1. If I had a covenant, or I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Just as a, the, the former phrase, uh, the desire of the flesh. Uh, so there, again, you know, sexual lust is, is only just a fraction of the meaning of that phrase. Uh, Matthew 6.22, Jesus, he, he asserts that the eye is the lamp of the body. And then he goes on, he adds, in the next verse, he says, if your eye is bad, your whole body is, is full of darkness. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, to, to cut it out, it's better to enter into to heaven with one eye than to be cast into the lake of hell with two and it's not Jesus advocating for self-mutilization. It's Jesus advocating to, to get rid of these things. Right? To put up this, this strong, marvelous guard. To remove these things from our lives. And place barriers. 
Your eyes are just are so closely related to your heart. Proverbs 17.24 says, the, the discerning set his face toward wisdom, but the eye of a fool are on the ends of the earth. The psalmist says of, of the arrogant in Psalm 73.7, the eye swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with folly. Speaking of, again, of, of arrogant people. The desire of the eyes. It, it describes someone who is so captivated by a, an outward show of materialism. Like they see that new vehicle and they're like, I, I must have it. I have to have it. They see that new outfit. I must have it. See that position, that status. I must have it. I'll do everything to have it. Rather than seeing Christ as the treasure hidden in a field that would give everything, anything, to obtain him. That's where our desire ought to be. Do anything to have it. To have Christ. Whether it's cars, outfits, positions, etc., so on. They're not in and of themselves sinful. But the excessive desire to have what we see, that's where the sin is. Desire to have anything contrary to God's will is sinful. Third phrase here, the pride of life. The boastful pride of life. Describes the the, the arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency. It expresses the desire for recognition, for applause, for status, for advantage in life. The phrase describes the pride in, in what life can offer to you. That Greek word translated pride, it describes the, the pretentious braggart, the, the boastful. This is the man who, who always wants to one-up. If your house is 1,500 square feet, his house is 1,501. There's always a, a, a one-up. They must one-up. Everything contrary to the will of God that, that we desire to have, that we, did, that we want to enjoy or pride ourselves upon is the pride of life. Everything from sensualism and indulgence of to, to, to self-conceit, the ungodly gratification of, of selfish, fleshy appetites, mental self-satisfaction is another one. I need to, to gain all this knowledge of things that don't really matter. We have no eternal satisfaction. There's the, the, the egotistic, the, the narcissistic arrogance. This is all the pride of life. All false views of pleasure, false views of possession, false views of superiority. This is the pride of life. It's an interesting correlation. Very interesting correlation between 
these broad categories here with uh, Eve's temptation by Satan in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Notice, the tree was good for food. The, the, the lust of the flesh. A, a delight to the eye. The lust, the desire of the eyes. A desire to make one wise. The pride of life. And it's, it's all right there. And what did man do? They fell. They fell. They gave in to these, these desires of the eye, desires of the flesh, the pride of life, the fall of man. But then, but then a, a beautiful thing occurred and, and, and continued to occur throughout history to this climax, which is the provision. God's provision. I think about that. In, in the garden, Adam and Eve, they, they sin, and then the Lord is walking in, in, in the garden and, and calling out to them. He knows exactly where they are because he's the sovereign the Lord of the universe, and, and, and he's calling out to them, and they're hiding, right? They're hiding because of their nakedness. And what did they do? They tried to, to make their own clothing. They tried to cover themselves. It was insufficient. The Lord, he, he fashions for them clothing, skins, makes a sacrifice, covers them with a sufficient covering for the moment. This is parallel. This is a, a picture of, of, of the atoning work of Christ right there in the garden, of a sufficient covering. And you can fast forward to Cain and Abel, right? And then we have Cain and Abel. You have one who gives an insufficient sacrifice. And you have uh, Abel who gave the sacrifice of, of well, he was a shepherd, so a lamb. It was pleasing to God. And you fast forward to Abraham. On that mountain, he was about to sacrifice his son. Because of his faith, he knew like that's kind of one of the wild stories where, like, how in the world, right? What a, I mean, an example of faith. He knew that God will provide, whether even in the, in the death of Isaac or, or, or not, that he was going to provide. He knew that God could bring him back to life. He knew that he was in the hands of God. He knew the promise that through him, he'll be a great nation. So he, there has to be a provision here. And what is the provision? A ram in the thicket. He gives them that provision. And we fast forward to the Exodus. Through the Passover. Sacrifice of the lambs. They painted the blood on, the, on their doorpost. They were passed over. The wrath of God passed them over. They had the Levitical system then put in place. The sacrificing of the lambs and the, the scapegoat on the year of atonement. All these provisions that have been set in place by our sovereign God, all pointing towards the, the, the main theme of history. 
I'll point it. Jesus comes and then John, he says, Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A once and for all provision given to his people. He constantly provides throughout history these pictures of that pinnacle moment on the cross. And then, check this out here. Go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. So keep all this in mind. The Lamb of God, He comes, okay? And we see here in, in verse, starting in verse 1. Think of the failure of, of Adam and Eve, right? The failure of Adam and Eve, the provisions that were given throughout history, right? All picturing and, and pointing towards Christ, right? Then Matthew 4, Matthew 4 here. Then Jesus was, was led up by the Spirit. Make note of that. He wasn't dragged by Satan. He went by the Spirit, went by his own accord, right? Went by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why? Well, because he's a great high priest, able to sympathize with our weakness. Right? Tempted in every way that we were tempted, every way that Adam and Eve were tempted, but yet did not sin. Look here. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Actually, let's do this. Whenever Jesus is speaking here, I want you guys to read it. All right? So I'll read down to where, where, where Christ speaks, and then we can read collectively together. All right? Four days before night, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered and said, And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temples and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on the other hand, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Do you see here? Do you see the pattern? See what, what went on in this moment? Right, that first temptation, an, an appeal to the lust of the flesh. And you're, Christ hungry. He fasted for 40 days. Don't take these stones and, and turn them to bread. You're hungry. Appealing to, 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 to the lust of the flesh, desire of the flesh, the hunger of the flesh. What did Christ do? He did not appeal to that. He did not appeal to the, to the lust of the flesh. He stood fast. Second temptation corresponding to the pride of life. Right, the pride of life, he... And the devil took him to the holy city, right, and put him on the pinnacle. To, to, he said, to, command the angels concerning, on their hands they will bear you up. Right? Jesus, he could have succumbed to the pride of life and knowing, I am the son of God. I know that, that the angels will, will provide for me, that they will catch me. 
They didn't. And the third temptation, appealing to the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. You're going to have all this, all this before your eyes. Christ doing what we could not do. We would all have been like Adam and Eve. We would all have fallen to the temptation that was presented before us. So in our need, our need for, for a Savior, our need for a perfect sacrifice, that is Christ. Back to First John here. Look at Look here, this is a great hope to, to hold steadfast in and knowing because of Christ's atoning work on the cross, because he has finished it, he has sealed it, he is the, the perfect one. And in 1 John 3, verse 2, he said, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. He who started a work in us will bring it to completion. And what a great hope. Why? Because it is done. He has finished it. He is the perfect one. He is the, 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 the perfecter and author of our faith. Philip Brooks, he said it well in the very last sentence of his sermon on the, the pride of life here, preaching on this very verse here in verse 16 of our passage this morning. He said this, he said, outside of his gospel and his service, there is the pride of life. And the pride of life is death. Anything outside of Christ uh, leads to death. Leads to destruction. John is teaching us here that our relationship to this world, this world system, must be one of, of opposition. Uh, the world is, is ever opposed to the things of Christ. That means it will oppose you as well. And if you live for Christ, the world will oppose you. Our relationship to the world must be, be guided by, by the Holy Spirit teaching us biblical principles that, that are frankly unpopular to the world. The world ever loves its own and hates those who belong to it. You know, this should not surprise us. should not surprise at the least. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen in his final words to his disciples before his crucifixion. The world hated him, so the, the world will hate you too. This question then, you know, how, do I, how do I stop? How do I stop loving the world? How are we to stop loving the world? The formula is actually rather simple. To love God. To love God. The more you love God, the more the world will spit you out. Verse 17 here. <clears throat> the world is passing away along with his desires. Whoever, by, whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
states here the second reason why we are not to love the world system. It's temporary. It's temporary. The, the world is passing away along with its desires. The world system has a built-in design flaw. It's temporary. It's already on its way out. Desires here is speaking of all things in this world system that can be desired. The tense, uh, the voice of this word in the Greek uh, is expressive of, of the fact that the world system is in this process right now of passing away. One use of that word, paragatia, in the Greek, passing away, in the first century had to do with uh, the theaters of the day. At the uh, conclusion of a scene, the, the curtain it would fall down or close and, and the props would be picked up and moved off stage. And, and then in preparation for the next scene, new props would quickly be, be brought on stage. John's point is that the world system opposed to God is like a scene in a play. When a scene comes to an end, the curtain falls and all the props will be removed. They'll be gone. The world system is passing away. And all the, 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 the fleeting things of this outward life are passing away. As it is written, dust you are and to dust you will return. That's correlation to everything. When you think about it, truly think about it, what, what really lasts forever? What really lasts forever? The knowledge of today will be the ignorance of tomorrow. The powerful nations of, of yesteryear are now nothing more than a historian's or archaeologist's interest. Nothing lasts. What you know, what you acquire, what you achieve will never last. Only God, only God and his kingdom and, and those who are rightly related to him will never fade, will never fade throughout eternity. The word, or I'm sorry, the world is, is passing away, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Abides forever. And reminder, it's not because one does the will of God that then they gain this, this access into eternity. No, that's not it at all. It is, it is Christ who, who purchased eternal life through the, the payment of his precious blood on the cross. His blood. And the, the working of the, the imputation of that work by the Holy Spirit upon his people. And so they believe. And so they live lives that are pleasing and, and, and that are sacrificial to the one who saved them. They do the will of their Father. One day, God will ring the curtain down. He will ring the curtain down. The play will be over. Everything will be taken away. 
And imagine how foolish it would look for, for one of the, the actors in the play to, to chase the prop people as they're removing the stuff from the stage. They're clinging to the, to the world system as it's being removed and passing away. The wise person is the one who, who desires and, and does the will of God. He's the one who abides forever. His life is on an, an eternal trajectory. In the the, the famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, he describes Christian's visit to to the town of Vanity Fair. Christian being the the main character. There's a lot of relation to John Bunyan himself in his testimony. But they visit this town of Vanity Fair. In in, in the 17th century in England, much like today, uh, towns and cities, they, they have fairs that people would come from all over the area to attend. At that fair, you could find all kinds of games and activities and and kinds of trinkets and merchandise to purchase. And so when Christian and and Faithful, Faithful is Christian's companion, uh, whenever they were asked there at Vanity Fair, what will you buy? And Faithful, he responded this way. He says, well, we buy the truth. And we see none of that for sale here. Then this, this infuriated the, the people of Vanity Fair, the vendors, and they stirred up the people against Christian and faithful. A mock trial then followed. Guilty verdict was swiftly returned. Faithful was martyred. But Christian escaped, resuming his, his journey towards the city of God. And too many Christians today Too many Christians today are charmed and bewitched by the world of Vanity Fair. James Dawson, he vividly describes this scene of the Pilgrim's Progress. I think it's very relevant to to our passage today here in 1 John. It's it's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read it because I I think it'll uh, tie this in and and bring light to, to this exhortation that John is bringing to us. Since it was the vanity fair where the pilgrims of eternity forgot their noblest purpose and were allured from the divine quest. Its jauntiness and glory, its glittering trinkets and visions of beauty bewitched the scene and made man forget the greatness of his origin and the greatness of his destiny. In its booths of pleasure and chambers of delight, its novelty and fascination and eerie laughter, men were allured to destruction, and forgot that they were pilgrims and sojourners as all their fathers were. And what, after all, was the world but a mere series of shows and vanities like a village fair, all alive at night with light and music. In the morning, nothing left but the trodden grass and a broken pole or two to mark where it had been. It was passing away like a stage picture upon which the curtain would soon fall. question, what are you loving today? What are we loving today? The world will will never satisfy. Will never satisfy. In fact, the more you are are gratified, the less you are satisfied. In this life, the the objects of worldly desire are all in the process of, of perishing. 
reason, experience, and revelation all converge in an, in an irrefutable threefold witness that everything under the sun, as Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes, is, is vanity of vanity. There's only one way. There's only one way to rid the human heart of its love for the world. It's one way. It's to set before the human heart God Himself. God Himself, who is so much worthier of our love, so that our heart will resign with the aid of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The heart will, will turn from the things of the world. The human heart will, will never relinquish its love for the world unless it finds something greater to love. The only way to dis- dispossess the heart of, of, of an old love is by the expulsive power of a new one. By the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And giving them a heart, taking their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh that is eager to love their Lord and Savior. It's about the power, the power of Christ and Christ alone. It's atoning work on the cross. For those without a saving faith in Christ, their visit to Vanity Fair, it does not end with a cemetery plot. It does not. Hell awaits all who reject Christ. Where not only do they perish eternally, but, but, but the possibility of their desires ever being gratified will perish with them. Imagine. Imagine nothing. Nothing to quench the thirst of the body. Nothing to quench the thirst of the soul. And no popularity for the, the status seeker. No bank accounts or, or checkbooks for the materialist. No sexual fulfillment for the sensualist. No, no books or computers for the intellectual. The appetite, though, remains. It remains. But the means of satisfying are non-existent. To add all this eternal torment. This is a reality for those who are not in Christ. It's an exhortation for anyone here this morning under the sound of my voice that that may not know Christ. It's an exhortation for those who do to, to go out and preach the gospel to a dying world. To our loved ones. Our friends, our family, our, the people who are uh, Christ has placed in our circle. He says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Finish with this. I would have expected John to say God abides forever. That is true. But it's not what he says. He says that people who do God's will abide forever. And remember, who are those that do God's will? Those have been regenerated and washed by the Holy Spirit. What a great hope. What a great hope we find in this. If I have God's eternal life in me via the imputation of Christ's atoning work on the cross, I'm going to abide forever with God in eternity. 
Because everything else is, is passing away. But the eternal one stands. The Alpha, the Omega. And we are bound and woven with him. Through his sacrifice on the cross. And so therefore, our lives have meaning. They have value. They have purpose through all of eternity. Because we're connected with the God of all eternity. The world cannot give meaning. The world cannot give hope. The world cannot give comfort. There is no worldly comfort in the long run. Only Christ and Christ alone can, can give us this eternal comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your eternal comfort that you have given us through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Help us to, uh, to turn from anything in our lives that are that cling to the world. Let me your spirit, the light of your son, Jesus, purge the darkness within us and show us places where we may not even know that we cling to the world. Father, we thank you for the, the, the ever-assurance of the sacrifice of the precious Lamb of God. And through Him, we know that it is finished, that it is sealed, that you have taken a people who were lost in their transgressions and now made them heirs to the promise. We cannot wait for that promise to, to be completed as we stand before you one day and all sing with one voice praise to you. Father, I pray that as we enter into to communion, that you bless the elements of the bread and the juice, that we do so as we partake in communion with, with contrite hearts, with, with joyful hearts. And knowing that through the flesh and the blood of your son Jesus, you've purchased us. We've been purchased by the perfect blood of the Lamb. Because we've been purchased, we eagerly await your return. Help us to do so with patience. Help us to bring glory and honor to your name each and every day. Father, give us your heart for the lost. Help us to not just pass by people in our day-to-day -day lives. Father, convict our hearts. Help us to hear, as Paul heard, heard the, the Macedonian from the other side of the sea in the vision that you've given them, that crying out for help. Father, how... Help us hear that. Help us hear that cry for help in the people that are around us that don't know you. Give us the words to speak to them with gentleness and kindness. Father, we pray for strength. We pray for your grace. <laughs> we need your grace, Father. We lift you up. We praise you in the precious, precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.